Y'all pray for me that I can get through this without being a crybaby because I'm just, I'm overwhelmed. Wow. Okay, so listen, let's, we got to do this. We got to do this. I got to, right? <laughs> all right. So listen, let me, all right. <laughs> um, I'm reminded of a story, a story of uh, this little teeny tiny pygmy over in Africa who's standing atop a giant rhinoceros that he's killed. <clears throat> Curious sight, this little guy, little teeny tiny pygmy who's standing atop this giant, ferocious, dead rhinoceros. Guy walks by and notices him standing there on top of this rhinoceros and he is confused, number one, and in awe, number two. So he asks a question to this guy. He says, hey, I need to ask you something. Did, did you, little teeny tiny pygmy guy, did you kill that rhinoceros? He said, well, yes, I did. Giant, ferocious looking rhinoceros. So the guy, still confused, looks at the little guy again and says, you mean to tell me that you killed that rhinoceros? He said, well, yeah, yeah, I did, I did. He says, okay, well, tell me, how did you do it? He says, I killed him with my club. So the guy is still a little confused. And he looks at him in a strange way and says, with your club? Yeah, with my club. He says, well, how big is your club? And the little teeny tiny pig, uh, pygmy says, well, there's about 100 of us <laughs> in my club. What happened was, and what, what was going on is he was surrounded, the pygmy guy, the little guy, the little, the little guy, who he was surrounded by people who had the same belief system. And they worked together so that they could handle being attacked by a ferocious rhinoceros. They worked together to do that. The challenge before us today that we have is not all that different than what the pygmy faced. It's huge. It seems like it may be difficult, uh, overwhelming to do what we're trying to do, to bring all nations, tribes, and tongues together around the throne, worshiping together, valuing each other, uh, doing life together. It seems like, in fact, some folks have called me crazy. It seems, some, to some people, it seems like it might be an insane undertaking. You, impossible, some might say. So if you look at it that way, it's not all that different than what the pygmy faced. Because I'm sure that there were people that said, Felton, this 
thing, this battle that you're up against, this, this challenge that you're facing is impossible, it's difficult, it's overwhelming. How are you going to ever be able to defeat this ferocious rhinoceros? We've got some rhinoceroses, if that's a word. It is now, I made that up. We, 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 we've got some huge uh, challenges that we're going to face, yeah, yeah, right? Yeah. But let me ask this question before I go on. Is anybody scared? I'm not scared. I think we're up to the challenge. I think, though, that what we have to do if we're going to really have any chance to succeed in this challenge is we have to employ the same strategy that the pygmies did. We have to look to them. We have to look to that example and employ the very same strategy in this challenge that we're facing. Uh, believe it or not, there's biblical evidence of what can be done when the task at hand seems overwhelming. In fact, there's a lot of biblical evidence, but I'm just going to talk about one case today. Uh, there is a model in Scripture for what we are doing. Although uh, it's a different kind of a project, I believe we can learn something from what happens in this situation that we're going to discuss today. And I believe that we can learn things and I believe that we can apply those lessons that we learn in this story to what we're doing now. It's the same model, by the way, that the pygmies use. It's the same strategy that they use to, to defeat the rhinoceros. And it's found in the book of Nehemiah. Nehemiah. Uh, in the book of Nehemiah, there is offered a vivid depiction of what's possible when a, pe when a group of people unite together vivid picture of that. So then, if I had to choose a theme for today or a subject or a title, if you would allow me to, I'd like to talk about this. The power of community, commitment, and faith. Because I submit to each of you that we're going to need all of those things. Fritz talked to us about uh, taught, taught us this morning from Acts chapter 1. And in Acts chapter 1, we know that it's the beginning of the church. They faced some challenges. And if you read through all of Acts chapter 1, especially uh, all of Acts chapter 1, uh, you'll find that some of these very same concepts were employed and utilized there in Acts chapter 1. There was a huge sense of community. There was a commitment level, and their faith was unshakable. I believe that we're going to have to use those very same things if we're going to have a chance to make it uh, and defeat and overcome this challenge that we have. I'm not scared. I think the reward far outweighs any risk that we may be facing because the re reward felt and read for us this morning from Re Revelation 7. That's the reward, and we see it this morning. This is the reward right? So there are lessons that we learn from Nehemiah. Uh, so what we're going to do this morning is we're going to pick up the story in chapter 3, but before we get to chapter 3, uh, allow me, if you will, 
to set the stage that brings us to Nehemiah chapter 3. So the year was for around 445 B.C. And as we encounter Nehemiah in chapter 1, uh, he's not a prophet, he's not a priest, he's simply a layman who has been commissioned by God to be a leader. He's not a preacher, he's not a prophet in the line of Isaiah or any of those other Old Testament prophets. He's a simple guy like some of you and like some of, 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 of us. He's just a simple guy who God has commissioned to be a leader. Nehemiah uh, finds himself in a situation. He had been carried away as a result of the exile in Babylon. He's now in Babylon. He has been lifted out of Judah as a result of the Babylonian onslaught led by King Nebuchadnezzar. And now he serves in Susa the citadel, serving for King Artaxerxes. He's serving there as the king's cupbearer. Many of you know the story. Uh, his job, he had a pretty good job. Well, there was some risk and some danger involved, but he, he had a kind of a cushy job. His job was to taste all of the food and all of the wine that before the king would partake of it, just in case someone was trying to poison the king. That was his job. He, he had it pretty good pretty easy life, uh, relatively speaking, compared to some others. Nehemiah had a pretty cushy life. Lived in the palace, ate good food. I know we're in church, but drank good wine. <laughs> Y'all can laugh. No, nobody's going to look at you funny. They're not, not going to be giving anything away. <laughs> he, had it, he had it made, right? Uh, then one day, Hanani, his brother, and some others return from a trip to Judah with some disturbing news. They come to Nehemiah and they share what would be some disturbing news with him. They say to Nehemiah that the remnant, the people that had been left behind in Judah, in the city of Jerusalem, were in distress. The walls had been broken down and the gates had been destroyed by fire. The people were in disarray. There was no leadership in the city and things were just going haywire. Nehemiah hears this news and as he hears this news, the Bible says that uh, he is in distress himself. Chapter 1 verse 4 says that as soon as Nehemiah heard the news, he sat down and wept, mourned for days, fasted and prayed because he wanted desperately to help resolve the issue that existed over in Jerusalem. But he knew that he was not able to do it alone. He knew that he was going to have to have God on his side. So the first thing we see Nehemiah do in chapter 1 after he gets this distressing news about his homeland is he prayed. Praise that God would strengthen him and that God would make a way for him to be able to go and help resolve this issue that the remnant were facing back in Jerusalem. Four months later, after Nehemiah gets the initial news, Nehemiah is in such distress, Felton, that four months later, he's still mourning about the situation. 
And he, four months later, is in the presence of the king. And the king, who had never witnessed Nehemiah be in such distress, wonders out loud, Nehemiah, your countenance is not like it usually is. What, something's going on with you. What, what's the issue? What's the problem? Nehemiah says, why wouldn't my countenance be sad? Because I don't know if you know it or not, king, but my people back home in Jerusalem are in distress. The walls of the city have been broken down and they are vulnerable to attack and there's no leadership in the city. The gates have been burned to the ground and I am in distress because I want to do something about it and I don't know what to do. And so Nehemiah shares the news with the king and as he shares the news the thought comes to him to ask the king for permission to have a leave of absence from his cupbearer's job and to be able to travel on a two to three month journey to Jerusalem to help out with repairing the city and restoring order he and Ezra in the city so he asked for permission from the king, but that's not the only thing he asked for. He also asked the king for letters. <clears throat> Write letters for me, if you will. He, it, it's a bold request that he makes of the king. King simply inquires what's wrong, and from there, God leads him to ask for some stuff. If this is not in the notes, this is extra. If there is something that you are in need of, that is in line with the will of God, just ask for it. Don't ever be afraid. Because you, 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 if you don't ask, you won't get it. So Nehemiah decides that he's going to ask for something. He's going he's to take a chance. Maybe over, overstep his bounds. And he says, I, I need letters. If you would write me letters that I would have safe passage from here in Susa the citadel in the province of Babylon for a two to three month journey to Jerusalem, I need safe passage so that nobody attacks me, nobody overthrows me, nobody tries to stop me from traveling. I need letters. Then he says, I'm not going to stop there because there's some other things I'm going to need for this project. Then I need a letter. I need a letter to the one who is the keeper of the forest. Write a letter to him and order him to provide timber for me so that when I arrive in Jerusalem that I'll have all of the resources that I need to rebuild the wall, to rebuild the gates, to rebuild homes to build myself a home. And all of that, I, listen, God will do exceedingly and abundantly above all you ask or think. You have to have the faith enough to ask. James says you, you have not because you ask not. So Nehemiah decided thousands of years before James came on the scene, <laughs> I'm gonna ask, <laughs> right? 
So he says, write a letter. And so the king agrees and writes these letters so that Nehemiah, number one, would have safe passage. Number two, he would have the resources that he needs that when he gets there, he can start this project. He'll have everything he needs to accomplish this task. So now we arrive at chapter three. We, as we arrive at chapter three, Nehemiah has now arrived in Jerusalem. And as he arrives in Jerusalem, and as we arrive in chapter three, I want to share with you our first thought for this exercise that we're doing. First thought. Here's the first thought. First thought is this. No matter what, we must work together. No, no matter, no matter where you come from, doesn't matter that we don't know each other, doesn't matter that you don't know my history, I don't know your history, doesn't matter that we may be from different socioeconomic uh, uh, parts of the community, does not matter your education level, my education level, it does not matter your color, my color, does not matter, none of that matters. Here it is, we've got to work together no matter what. No matter what, no matter your preferences, no matter your likes or dislikes, we've got to figure out a way, Stephanie, to work together, don't we? Now, let me, let me, let me pause, because uh, I need to say this. Just because I call your name doesn't mean I'm picking on you. Uh, that, that just helps me to interact with you. So I may call somebody John Ray in the back. It doesn't matter. I'm not picking on anybody. That's just what I, what I like to do. Is that all right? Y'all going to be all right with this? We're still kind of setting the stage for what we're doing going forward, right? So Nehemiah arrives in Jerusalem, and as he arrives in Jerusalem, we are reminded of this. Everybody that's a part of this challenge is going to have to work together. I'm going to ask you to do me a favor. This is kind of unusual but would you allow me to read all of chapter 3? Would you bear with me? It's long, but I'm going to try to get through it fast. I need your prayers, though, for one thing. Because I think we're going to see something if you allow me to do this. I, when I started this, Kevin, I said, you know, maybe I can just do a couple of these verses. But the more I read it, I said, the more it came to me, John, told you I get people from everywhere. I'm going to get everybody before the day is over. It came to me that we don't, this, this, this chapter is so rich. And it really stresses this point that I think it's good that we read it all. So bear with me, and I need your prayers for some of these names. <laughs> Pray with me that I don't just, just totally destroy. Let's try this, all right? <laughs> you say, say, we won't know. <laughs> bear with me. We'll get through it, all right? I think you're going to see something beautiful begin to happen as we read through this. Then... Eliashib, the high priest, rose up with his brothers, the priests, and they built the sheep gate. They consecrated it and set doors, set its doors. They consecrated it as far as the tower of the hundred, as far as the tower of Hananel. And next to him, the men of Jericho built. And next to them, Zachor, the son of Imri, built. The sons of Hashanab, Hashanab, Hashanah, told you, pray for me, built the fish gate. They laid its beams and set its doors, its bolts, and its bars. And next to them, Merimoth, the son of Uriah, 
uh, son of Hakaz, repaired. And next to them, Meshullam, the son of Berechiah, son of Meshezbael, repaired. And next to them, Zadok, the son of Bani, repaired. And next to them, the Tekoites repaired. But their nobles would not stoop to serve the Lord. Joadah, the son of Paseah, and Meshullam, the son of Besodeah, repaired the gate of Yeshana. They laid his beams and set his doors, bolts, and bars. And next to them repaired Melatiah, the Gibeonite, and Jadon, the, Mar the Marathonite. The men of Gibeon and of Mizpah, the seat of the governor of the province beyond the river. Next to them, Uziel, the son of Harai, goldsmiths repaired. Next to him, Hanani, one of the performers repaired. And they restored Jerusalem as far as the broad wall. Next to them, Rephaiah, the son of Hur, ruler of half the district of Jerusalem repaired. Next to them, Jedeiah, the son of Haramoth repaired opposite his house and next to him Hattush the son of Hashabena Hash anyway repaired Melchizedek the son of Haram and Hashab the son of Pehat Moab repaired another section of the tower of the ovens next to him Shalom the son of Helohesh ruler of half the district of Jerusalem repaired and he and his daughters he had his daughters on the wall Lord have mercy God, look at this. This is beautiful. You got to see what's going on here. Hanan and the inhabitants of Zanoah repaired the valley gate. They rebuilt it and set its doors, the, bo the boats and bars, and repaired a thousand cubits of the wall as far as the dung gate. Melchijah, the son of Rechab, ruler of the district of Bethacharim, repaired the dung gate. He repaired it and set its doors, its boats, and its bars. And Shalem, the son of Kohazah, ruler of the district of Mizpah repaired the fountain gate. He rebuilt it and covered it and set its doors and bolts and its bars and built the wall of the pool of Shelah and, and of the king's garden. And as far as the, as the stairs that go down from the city of David, after him, Nehemiah, this is a different Nehemiah, the son of Asbuk, ruler of half the district of Bezor, repaired to a point opposite the tombs of David, as far as the artificial pool, and as far at, as the house of of the mighty men. After him, the Levites repaired. Rehum, the son of Bani. Next to him, Heshbiah, ruler of the half district of Keala, repaired for his district. After him, their brothers repaired. Baviah, the son of Hanadad, ruler the half district of Keala. Next to him, Ezor, the son of Jeshua, ruler of Mizpah, repaired. Another section uh, opposite the ascent to the armory at the buttress. After him, Baruch, the son of Zabiah, repaired another section from the buttress to the door of the house of Eliashib, the high priest. After him, Merimoth, son of Uriah, son of Hakaz, repaired another section from the door of the house of Eliashib to the end of the house of Eliashib. <gasps> Gotta take a breath. Y'all still with me? Everybody woke? Isn't this beautiful? After him, the priests, the men of, of the surrounding area repaired. After them, Benjamin and Hashab repaired opposite their house. After them, Azariah, the son of Messiah, son of Anan Ananiah, repaired beside his house. After him, Benuai, the son of Hinadad, repaired another section from the house of Azariah to the buttress and to the corner. Pelal, the son of 
Uzi repaired opposite the buttress and the tower projected from the upper house of the king at the court of the guard. After him, Padai, the son of Perosh, and the temple servants living in Ophel repaired to a point opposite the water gate on the east and projecting tower. After him, the Tekoites repaired another section opposite the projecting tower as far as the wall of Ophel. Above the house gate, the priests repaired, each one opposite his own house. After them, Zadok, the son of Emer, repaired opposite his own house. After him, Shemaiah, the son of Shechaniah, the keeper of the east gate, repaired. After him, Hananiah, son of Shalemiah, and, and Hanan, the son of Zalaph, repaired another section. We're almost there. After him, Meshulam, the son of Berechiah, repaired opposite his chamber. After him, Melchijah, one of, his, one of the goldsmiths repaired, as far as the house of the temple, servants and the merchants opposite the muster gate and the upper chamber of the corner. And between the upper chamber of the corner and the sheep gate, the goldsmiths and merchants repaired. We made it. <laughs> no matter what, we must work together. This is beautiful. Uh, they, listen, people from all walks of life working side by side together. Many of them didn't know each other. Some of them didn't like each other. Some of them were enemies. Some of them lived in the city. Some of them lived far away from the city. The Tekoites the were working. They lived miles away from Jerusalem, but they came to the city of Jerusalem and decided to join together in this effort to help rebuild the wall. Listen, I submit to you that they were not just building a wall. They were building community. They were building community. Rick Warren says some things about community. He says this, in order to have unity, you've got to have community. And I don't know about you, but in order to do what we're trying to do, we've got to have unity. The only way to build that is to build community. You see, he also says, as he says, if you want something that's stronger than just a weekend crowd, anybody here just for a weekend crowd type of an experience? I'm not. If, 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 if this is going to be stronger than that, then we must endeavor to build community. That has to be a part of what we're doing. One of the best ways to build community is through small groups. I told you I was going to talk a little bit about that later. And so one of the ways that we've decided is a good way to help build community is through life groups. Uh, and we've, so I'll say again, if you have a desire, I, I would pray that everyone would sign up for that. We see this concept, we, we see this concept of small groups, life groups on display in the text. There were 34 small groups working together to accomplish this task. Can you imagine people who didn't know each other, who could have possibly been enemies, working side by side, day in and day out, 34 life groups, 34 small groups working together to accomplish this task, building community while they worked. Can you see the picture of what was going on? Can you imagine some of the conversations that they had? 
along the way, day in and day out. There were goldsmiths working. So here's an interesting thing. Most of these people were not trained carpenters or trained builders. These people came from all walks of life just like we do. But they came together to rebuild this wall and to reinstill hope in a hopeless situation. Goldsmiths work together. Perfume makers work together. District and half-district rulers worked on the wall. Levites worked on the wall. Priests worked on the wall. Merchants worked on the wall. Even, as you heard, one man had his daughters <laughs> on the wall. Everybody was working together. They forgot about differences. Although they had them, they decided that this project is more important than that. Uh, can you imagine, again, the conversation? They learned about each other's families. Can you imagine they talked about soccer games? Well, maybe they didn't have soccer games back then. But they talked about graduations. Well, maybe they didn't have that either. They talked about how their kids stayed up all night playing Fortnite. Well, maybe they didn't have that back then. But I, I tell you, they had their own issues. And I'm sure, I'm sure they shared with each other as they worked day in and day out some of the challenges that each faced so that they could build community. Can you imagine how that looked? Day in and day out, they worked together. Uh, Warren also points out that there are 58 one-anothers in Scripture. These 58 occurrences of those two words, one another's, talk about how we treat one another. And so it's important that we treat one another right. And this happens in small groups. He says that a healthy church grows larger and smaller at the same time. What's meant by that is we worship in large groups like we have today. But we fellowship, and fellowship happens in small ones. That's the reason why I said that this is a great model that, that we're going to put in place. Uh, so what, what, what that means is that you need to know someone well. Someone needs to know you well. Someone needs to recognize when you're missing. And I may not always know that you're missing, but someone who you're in a life group with will know that you were missing and maybe you're hurting and maybe they recognize that and realize that and you can uh, minister to each other. They can call you and say, I noticed that you weren't in church this morning. Just checking on you. The, the pastor often gets blamed for that when it happens. Well, the pastor didn't call me and I haven't been to church in a month. Well, number one, <laughs> I better tread real lightly here. <laughs> Number one, you know, you haven't been in church for a month, right? And number two, even in a group this size, it's hard for the person that's doing this to recognize when one person has not. Sometimes it happens. But that's where the small group experience and the fellowship of that is so important, right? And so that's what we want to do. We want to do that. Uh, so we must work together. And then that bring us, brings us then 
to our second thought. I am going to get to an end here in a minute. This is the second thought. Don't get distracted. Because I promise you that there will be distractions along the way. Uh, there's already been some distractions along the way. There will be more distractions. I'm not just making this up. It's in the story. All right? Look at the text. Chapter 4, verses 1 through 3 says this. Here we, here we go. Here, here, here it comes. Here, here comes the distraction, right? Now, when Sanballat heard that we were building the wall, he was angry and greatly enraged, and he jeered at the Jews. And he said in the presence of his brothers and of the army of Samaria, what are these feeble Jews doing? Will they restore it for themselves? Will they sacrifice? Will they finish up in a day? Will they revive the stones out of the heaps of rubbish and burn ones, and burn ones at that? Then Tobiah the Ammonite was beside him, and he says something to them that is uh, mocking them. He says this, Yes, what they are building, if a fox goes up on the wall, he will break down their, their stone wall. There will be distractions and challenges. Notice, though, so, so, so what happens is that they are threatened and they are mocked. Look at, look at 6, look at 6 uh, through 8. Let's read that. So here, here's what it says in 6 through 8. So we built the wall, and all the wall was joined together to the half of its height, for the people had a mind to work. But when Sanballat and Tobiah and the, and the Arabs and the Ammonites and the Asdodites heard that the repairing of the walls of Jerusalem was going forward and that the breaches were beginning to be closed, they were very angry and they all plotted together and to come and fight against Jerusalem and cause confusion in it. Notice their response. If you read through the entire text, you'll find the response that happens every time there is a challenge, every time there is an opportunity to be distracted, they do the very same thing. Their response is always the same when these threats come, when mocking happens, they do the same thing. When mocked, they pray and keep going. When threatened, they pray and keep going. Tobiah mocks them in verse 3. If a fox goes up on it, he'll break it down. You, you don't have any idea what you're doing. What you're building won't last. There are people right now that are saying, what you're doing over there, if a fox runs up on it, he'll break it down. Because this is impossible. It won't last. You have no idea what you're doing. How, how do you think you're going to bring all tribes, nations, and tongues together and that they're going to worship together? They're going to build community together? They're going to do life together? Have you absolutely, positively lost your mind? No, I haven't. Because I'm going to do what Nehemiah and the Jews did. I'm going to pray and keep working. That's what they did. They prayed and they kept working and here's the reason why. The text says they did it because they had a mind to work. You know what that means? 
It means that our minds are made up. That no matter what, we're not going to allow distractions. We're not going to allow what we call the pastor to distract us. We're not going to allow what we wear to church to distract us. We're not going to allow simple, small things, what song was sung today, to distract us. We're not going to allow what somebody else says about how impossible this is. We're not going to allow the Sanballas and the Tobias and the Geshams of the world to distract us and to cause us to come down off of this wall because just like Nehemiah, I'm not coming down. They tried to trick him into coming down, Kevin. They, they tried to trick him so that they could do him harm. And he said, this work is too important. I'm not coming down off this wall. Stayed there. We have to be committed to guard against distractions. It's interesting what they did. They were threatened. And you know what they did? They prayed. They kept going. But they did something else. You know what they did? They armed themselves. And it was so beautiful. If you read the entire thing, you'll see how beautiful it is. I don't have time today, but read it in your own time. Many of you already know the story. They armed themselves. In some cases, half of them stood guard and half of them worked. In other cases, the text says that there were even some cases where there were people working on the wall with a sword or a spear in one hand and a hammer in the other hand. They were guarding with the left hand and sawing and hammering with the right hand. Now, if that's not a beautiful, glorious picture for us of what we have to stand guard, but we have to keep working. At the same time, I need to try to land this plane. So I need to get... (laughs) They refused to be distracted. So that brings us then to our third and final lesson that we learn from them. Here it is. Great things are possible through community, commitment, and faith. Great things are possible. Records are shattered. Trails are blazed. Minds are blown when we have community, commitment, and faith. Look at chapter 6, verse 15. Chapter 6, verse 15 brings it all home. Because you remember back in chapter 4, they had completed half of the wall, but they still had some work to do. They were threatened. They were mocked. And if they had given in, they wouldn't have made it to chapter 6. But because they prayed and kept working, we arrive now at chapter 6, verse 15. And look at what happens in chapter 6, verse 15. So the wall was not halfway done, The wall was finished on the 25th day of the month, Elu, in 52 days. Records are shattered. Trails are blazed. Minds are blown when there is community, commitment, and we can't, for, for God's sake, forget the third one, and that's faith. We have to be people of community, people of commitment, people of faith, and we'll break records. For the not, watch this, be careful, because it's not for our own glory. It's for God's glory. Trails are being blazed. Did you know that this is the absolute first time in the history 
of the world that this has ever happened in Tyler. This, this has never happened. There are multi-ethnic, multicultural churches, but there has never been a church that has said, that, that has gathered together from predominantly one ethnicity that has said, we want to, and the other church on the other side that's predominantly one ethnicity said, we want you to. <laughs> We want to combine, unite together so that we can fight the forces of the enemy and so that we can look like revelation. This has never happened in our city. It's happened in other places, but this is historic for us. This is blazing a trail for East Texas. And I'm so honored. Y'all have to excuse me because I get a little excited. So I'm just let, let, since we've been talking about housekeeping stuff, let me just tell you, sometimes I holler a little bit. <laughs> you know, sometimes I holler more than I'm hollering today. I'm trying to control myself. This is the mild-mannered version of Ricky. <laughs> this is that woo. But I'm excited about what God is doing. And if you are committed, you build community, and there is a level of unshakable faith, things can be, mountains can be moved. If you do what we're doing, if you are committed to working together, mountains can be moved for the glory of God. Revelation 7 happens when we do this. I'm reminded of Canadian geese. That's an interesting observation, isn't it? Canadian geese are fascinating birds. They live in the north, in Canada, and even further north, but every winter, they migrate south. They migrate to the southern, southernmost states in the United States, even to South America and, America and northern Mexico. When they migrate, they travel in what's called a V formation. You've probably seen them in the air. They travel in a V, and there's one that takes the lead. The others fall behind. And there was a study done by some engineers that did this in a wind tunnel to see what the benefit of this V formation was. And they found out that as they travel in the V formation, one is a little higher than the other, and the one behind him is a little higher. And they gain momentum and speed because of the way they are formated, formed in the air. And because of the V found, uh, formation, they have a 70 1% more likely of a chance to arrive at their de destination quicker than they would if they traveled alone. Each one builds off the other. There's one that takes the lead. And when he gets tired or she gets tired, they fall back to the back. And whoever was the next in line makes their way to the front and they take the lead and fly for a little while. I'm sorry, I get a little excited. And so the, the, the geese, when they're flying, uh, 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 they, they, they have this V formation, and it allows them to arrive quicker than they would have if they'd flown alone. Here's the other thing. If anybody falls off, if anybody gets tired, if anybody falls out of the V, they start honking. And the honking is there to be able to bring the one that had fallen off to bring them back to the V. Yeah. Yeah. They don't go off and leave the one. They honk at him and say, hey, hey, you need to catch up. That is a perfect picture of community, commitment, and, and, and a sort of faith. But here it is. Our faith is a little different than the geese. I like what the songwriter says. He says, my hope is built 
on nothing less. I'm not like a goose. My hope is not in the one that's in the front. My hope is not in the one that's leading the V. My hope, he says, is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and his righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name, on Christ, the solid rock I stand all of the ground is sinking sand. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. Thank you, Lord, for what you're doing. You are an awesome God. We know you have big plans. We simply pray that we don't mess it up. Empower us and equip us, Lord God, to stay on the wall. Empower and equip us, Lord God, to work together, to be committed, to build community, and stand strong in faith as you show us what you have in store. We thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.